you but know. this is an, a common answer that I give to people who ask me why do all cars look the same? Well, it's because they're built to the same set of uh, rules, regulations, dogmas, and, yeah. and hard points. You know that the sort of the entry curve is one of them. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Smoking Tire Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Off the Record. We love Off the Record, and I know that you guys love Off the Record. You tell me all the time when Off the Record saves you money. The way it works is it's very simple. If you get a ticket, a moving violation of any kind, from the small to the very big, you call Off the Record. Well, you don't actually call. You go to offtherecord.com slash TST or download the Off the Record app and use code TST10. Then Off the Record will set you up with a qualified attorney in the jurisdiction where you got that ticket. They will fight that ticket on your behalf. You don't have to go to court. You don't have to do anything besides scan or send a photo of that ticket and pay a very modest fee for their services. And our discount code TST10 on the Off the Record app or Off the Record com slash TST on the web will get you 10% off all legal services, not just this time, but every time. That way, Off the Record can fight that ticket on your behalf. Make sure those points stay off the record because it's never just about the fine of the ticket, right? A lot of people go, ah, well, I'll just plead guilty, get it over with, pay the fine. But it's not just that fine. There's the court costs, but more importantly, there's the insurance costs. It's just a problem. It can follow you around for years. It's a whole economic system based on squeezing money out of you, and you don't want to be a part of it. Exit that system with Off the Record. So go to offtherecord.com slash TST or download the Off the Record app and use code TST10. It is brilliant. Alrighty, folks, we got a special show for you today. Sasha Solipinov is in the studio. This dude is a heavy hitter. He uh, is an independent automotive designer, but he has worked for some of the greats, designing one of the greatest supercars of all time, the Bugatti Chiron. He's also designed the Koenigsegg uh, CC8 50th anniversary we saw at the Quail uh, last year. He designed the Koenigsegg Gemara, the very first four-seat hypercar, uh, the Bugatti Vision, Vision GT, the 2015 Atlantic. He designed the Lamborghini Huracan. He's designed for Genesis. I mean, this is a heavy hitter designing resume. Such a treat to have him in studio talking about how to design a hypercar. It's Sasha Solipinov on the Smoking Tire Podcast. Welcome, Sasha. Thank you, man. Thanks for coming by. It's awesome to be here. Yeah. I think it was, um, was it Castriota who said that I have to talk to you? I think it was my friend uh, Alan Macy. At least he was the one who reached out to me. Oh, yeah. he No, but it was either the oil stain lab guys or Castriota. It could be it could, either. It could I mean, have been I either know Jason, them. I know the oil stand up guys. Yeah, well I think too, it was so. Jason who was like, you have to talk to Sasha because awesome. yeah. uh, you you're a fucking heavy hitter. Heavy hitter. Where did you fucking come from? Gained a lot of weight. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> like, uh, how, I mean, have you ever designed a normal car or have you only ever designed like million dollar plus cars? No, I mean, obviously you, uh, uh, you know... It's not easy to get into those projects. So to earn your right of passage, you have to do quite a lot of uh, uh, regular car work. And uh, um, my first, I would say, 
six, seven years working for VW Group. Mm. Was primarily on regular car projects. We did everything from, you name it, the next Jetta to the, I don't know, Touaregs and Golfs. And, and were you uh, doing whole car or little sections like lights and door mm. handles and stuff or what? No, no. We, each designer has a chance to propose their complete vision for mm. the exterior. And then if you get picked, then you end up doing, you know, a, a full-size model with a, a few um, uh, clay modelers helping you out. And this was my early days sort of learning the... Learning how to make a nice-looking car, uh, picking up skills and, and experiences from uh, those clay guys around. Did you go to Art Center? Yes. I okay, did. cool. What year did you graduate Art Center? Uh, 05. Okay. Oh, so you're you're a year younger than me. Okay, cool. So it's been a minute. You've it's been in the, you've been, been in the world for a while. Did you go yeah. direct from Art Center to VW to car industry? Yeah. So. Um, Graduating Art Center, I had a few offers, but VW, uh, they helped me with my degree project, and I was quite close with uh, a few people there. What was the degree project? Oh, it was a, a Dino Competizione Ferrari. Oh. So which, that was also quite weird, because they helped me a lot. Um, and, and, and Volkswagen, Volkswagen was helping you with helping that? How with does that. that work? Well, it wasn't official, let's just say. It was just uh, there was there, there was a, a head of design at VW here in California, uh, Simi Valley Studio back then was Derek Jenkins. Oh, yeah. Uh, I know Derek. Derek's a good friend. Yeah. And, uh, he mentored me through my uh, final semesters in school. And oh, then, cool. Uh, he said, look, we want to support you, but it's a Ferrari. It's not a Volkswagen, so we can't do it officially. But maybe we, you can use our 3D printers in the evening when nobody's watching. And then the painter, get, the painter at the studio, Bob, he was just an amazing help. He picked up all these parts and said, you're going to ruin them with your your in-laws and your wife sending the parts in the studio. This is not going to go well. So just bring them, bring them, bring, bring them to the office, and I'll spend a weekend slaving away. And and, and then Honda guys uh, pitched in as well. They did 3D printing of the interior. So it was kind of like an incredibly expensive, ambitious project that I, I ended up just scavenging off of people in a way. I mean, I designed it and, and it's I modeled like a, it. And one eighth or one sixth scale model or something was, like that. It was a quarter scale. Quarter. So, so it's pretty big. Pretty big. Yeah. yeah. Is That's that cool. common for a final project? Is that the requirement, or did you get ambitious? Uh, so the uh, back then, uh, the requirement was a fifth scale uh, clay, uh -huh. but the design theme that I had in mind was all like fragile, thin surfaces, so I couldn't execute them in clay. Plus, I was always very passionate about doing things on the computer. Um, just my two passions were cars and kind of computers mm -hmm. as a kid. So I, I just always wanted to do things uh, digitally. Yeah. And then when I, when I came up with the design and I showed it to Derek to, to a few of my instructors at the time, they said, there's no way you're going to pull this off in clay, so might as well just do something else. Yeah. But instead, then we figured if we 3D printed the whole thing, it could, yeah. Did you like clay? Um, no. I'm, I'm, I'm pathetic with my hands. Like, it's just the lowest, you know, it's disgusting the stuff that I can produce with my two hands. <laughs> so, but that clay is an interesting art, yeah. though, isn't it? For sure. The guys who are they still? They are magicians. Yeah. Are, are they still doing it by hand, or is there now some kind of like three D printer, three D mill <clears throat> machine that does that? The clays. Um, I'm very biased, so that's a very sensitive topic. Oh. Hit a nerve. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, like a lot out of the people there in the, the industry. Yeah, exactly. A lot yeah. of people in the industry are still relying a lot on clay. There's there's plenty of car companies that are still very much clay based uh, design studios that that execute things only in clay, and then some believe that 
the magic touch and the human touch is only possible when you have a you know artisan clay modeler uh, putting their that heart and soul Italian. into it. Well, it, it's, it <laughs> is true like to a point. Italy, yeah. It is true to a point because these guys, they're real sculptors, they're talents. But then as a designer, you're not the one executing your own car. There's mm. this other person who puts their talent into it. Mm. And a lot of it is you explaining to them what it is that you wanted to do and them misunderstanding it and channeling it through their own understanding of what beautiful cars are like. And it, it could be incredibly rewarding because they bring a perspective to the table that you didn't have. Mm. But it could also be incredibly frustrating because w let's say the guy has a passion for E-types and I always thought E-type was pathetic looking. So I, I don't want my volumes overbodied like an E-type. I would much rather be closer to a 250 short wheelbase than an mm. E-type and mm. we're having all so, these philosophical arguments. So you, arguments. Could, you could have a final design and hand it to the clay person, the clay modeler, and they could change it drastically like my, my I always thought yeah. they take your direction from them and they go okay that's exactly what I'm making this is the scale I'm making these are the proportions I'll make and then they just execute it I guess that's varies it varies so as a designer in a conventional traditional car studio you produce drawings right so you produce um, two-dimensional two-dimensional right. output and you hang it on the wall your bosses come and they say well this looks great why don't you try this idea on a full-size model and then you're speaking to that clay modeler and you're saying look like we should do it this way we should do it that mm -hmm. way you even you can even do sections you can bring them sections and say I want the door section to be exactly like this but then when they start sculpting they they always deviate from what you did plus they have to because your two-dimensional sort of output was never uh, going to come together perfectly into a 3d model it, mm -hmm. there's always areas where you thought your door section was going to be such and your fender section was going to be this other thing and then they don't come together there's no there's no nice surface that transitions mm -hmm. between your door that you imagined and your fender section that you thought of so then the clay modeler is the is the guy who actually ends up doing all the fun bits of the job to me because yeah. the, the actual sculpting is the fun oh, wow. but if you're designing on a computer you now have a 3d version of it Right. So do you then bypass the clay yes. process entirely? Entirely. Okay. I, I learned everything I know how to do from those guys. I give them all sorts of credit for, for, for the enlightenment that I got from them. But now I'm doing it on my own, on the computer, and mm -hmm. I'm using other designers who are also doing it on the computer in 3D. And we use uh, 3D modelers, computer modelers, uh, who are exchanging data with us. And it's basically a process where everybody speaks the same language. Right. Instead of you humming a melody and somebody else trying to put that melody into score, you are the one writing the score. Yeah. It, it just cuts out the humming part. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So when you're submitting a whole car design and competing against other people on the team, how many people are you competing against typically? 10, 50? It very much depends on the project and the size of the com company. I mean, mm. at... Uh, uh, kind of like when when I was uh, you know head of design and in charge of the team, it was a very small team. We were like seven, the whole company seven is like a hundred people. people isn't exactly. it? Well, no, it's 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 more now. The company has grown to um, six hundred now, I guess. But we were we were a team of seven seven to ten people with a couple of contractors helping us out here and there. Ten people. But uh, VW design, let's say the next Golf, it would be a pretty standard practice to see. 40 people competing mm -hmm. and then 10 full-size models and each full-size model has a side and b side and one person on the a side is responsible and then the other one is on the b side so then you have 10 full-size models 20 a designers. side and b side what is that driver side passenger side oh you can try different things this way yeah. right you can try a different door uh, idea or you can try a different window oh, the, the, they're asymmetrical they're the asymm models yeah. right and you'll yeah, do it yeah. with, with one model right so on one side of the car it's one thing and you walk around the front yeah. and it changes usually mm -hmm. they would keep the front and the rear as 
symmetrical as possible so mm -hmm. the car doesn't look like a Frankenstein, but um, yeah. Ironic when you say it's for a golf because, like, the golf doesn't change that much, you know, generation to generation. <laughs> exactly. Whereas a new, like, Koenigsegg or something could be, like, wild and off the You, you, know, ha you have a wall. difficult time telling the, the designs apart. I mean, there's 10 of them in front of you. It's outdoors. There's a big design review, and you're wondering... Uh, which one's mine? <laughs> Yours is the one that looks like a Dino. Apparently. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that Dino concept was probably interesting. I, did you ever uh, get to share it with uh, someone like Glickenhaus, who was like obsessed with those with those Competizione Dinos and did his Ferrari P45 with the bubble top and all that stuff? Jason did that, crap. right? Right. I mean, um, so. Glickenhaus and I didn't really uh, cross paths uh, in any meaningful way. We only were once on an airplane together flying to New York from somewhere in Europe, I think Geneva or something. Um, so, no, I didn't cross paths no. with him. But I did, of course, see the work Jason did uh, uh, at Pininfarina for Glickenhaus. I think the P45 uh, still remains kind of one of my favorite uh, Beautiful uh, cars. Cars, cars from that era. Yeah, uh, A lot of the Ferraris uh, went into a how do I put it, overstyled direction, and that thing just speaks back to all the real, uh, true kind of yeah. beauty aspects. Jim and I are from the same town in New York, and I would see him driving that thing around. That's and cool. when you see that car, you know, not at a on a concourse or on a show stand, but like, you know, surrounded by Volkswagen Golfs and, yeah, you know, regular cars, it's, it's like thing. from a different planet, I'm sure. uh, basically, yeah. Crazy, crazy uh, car. Yeah. That was, I have, did you but see, you in my office, in, I have You can type the, in my Dino if you want. Just type in Dino uh, into search uh, and Celipan of my last name. I want to see that thing. Yeah, Dino. There's a little delay. S-E. Yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah. There it is. Oh. The yellow thing. Fun. Yeah. Wow. So that was 05. Oh, that's pretty cool. I like that. So you see it's these like a, floating surfaces that yeah, could be yeah. made out of clay. It's like wearing a hat. A little it's, bit. Yeah, but, but I really wanted the bubble top, so I kind of exaggerated. Yeah, yeah. That would not have worked in clay. No. Whoever told you that that was, uh, was definitely right. Yeah. <laughs> that wouldn't have worked yeah. in clay. It looks really cool, though. It's got, like, like some Ferrari vibes, but also some, like, Myers-Manx kind of sure. vibes a yeah, little bit. Th that was actually Derek's influence, because <laughs> I spent the internship in, in California <laughs> yeah. studio here, and it was all about buggies, so mm -hmm. I got this, like... Of course, Derek has one of the coolest yeah. uh, Manx buggies around. Yeah. His thing is dope. Yeah. That's cool. It's got, and I, I see like maybe a little like Jay Mays love in there too. Sure. Plenty. Yeah. Freeman Thomas, Jay Mays, all those sure. guys are kind of my heroes. Yeah. Very, very cool. Okay, so what was the first uh, design that you did that was actually picked for Volkswagen? Did you oh, have yeah. one that was, was picked? There was a Jetta that was picked, uh -huh. uh, and then that thing. Oh my God, that 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 just didn't work. I mean, that thing looked pretty bad, and I, I struggled to make it look good because I just I was too young and, and inexperienced and stubborn which was a good thing but in a bad way <laughs> did that become a production Jetta at some point I was taken off the project ultimately oh. there was a big management change and I was told that uh, I should vacate the seat <laughs> <laughs> which which was a blessing in disguise yeah in hindsight now yeah uh, and so from and then but you you stayed at Bugatti or stayed at Volkswagen Group I stayed right? at Volkswagen Group I, yeah. I felt like there was a lot to learn uh, at VW, mm -hmm. and there was people around me. Like my direct boss was uh, at that time Thomas Ingenlot, who is now uh, CEO of Polestar. Oh, cool! Uh, and I was uh, working directly under him. He's guy is a, a great sort of design taste and and uh, just a very uh, inspirational uh, design leader. Um, so I was 
happy to stay, even though I was taken off the Jetta. And there was always, always also a promise of uh, all these exciting brands, you know, Lamborghini coming and doing a project with our design team or, or Bugatti. And those projects popped up every once in a while. And I, I remember that um, um, there was a moment when Lambo came for um, what became the Huracan. And they came to our design team in Germany and they said, we need interior design proposals. And I was an exterior designer, so I begged uh, uh, my bosses to allow me back then to uh, do an exterior. And they were, no, no, the guys are only interested in interior. I said, but I really want to do an exterior. So I just built up my own exterior and I, I asked them to put it into the presentation folder. They did. And head of design at the time was Walter De Silva. Mm-hmm. And he started looking at the presentation folder from the wrong side, from what I remember. So he just opened the, the He back opened the last the, one and first. And he saw the exterior and he was like, oh, that's so cool. We should just do that. So then all of a sudden we had an exterior project in the team. Wow. So then all the designers were invited to participate, oh, cool. although I kind of opened the door with mine, but then everybody jumped in on the project. Yeah. And, but Huracan's I, I a great looking car. Yeah. I mean, it's clean, but aggressive and it works. So actually I was sent to Italy at the end of that project for um, a year and a half to finish that exterior together with the Italian team. So that was my first big kind of production exterior. Did you, did you enjoy that? Oh, very much. And it was crazy. I remember, like, one of my most vivid uh, memories from that time is I'm obsessed with Italian cars. I mean, for me, that is really the, the, the holy grail, the religion. So I'm sitting there in, in Sant'Agata, and I would buy, like, a carton of uh, red wine and a bowl of mozzarella. And I would just sit there drinking on the curb, drinking the wine and just eating mozzarella and just, like, touching the ground. Like, I'm on holy ground. <laughs> <you know? laughs> this yeah. is crazy. Yeah. So I was just jittering the whole time. Yeah. That's cool. Were they fun to work with or did they, did they like, I mean, obviously they have pride in their work, but was it a different like corporate environment from Volkswagen? I think that uh, when I first arrived, uh, uh, there was, I wouldn't say there was an adjustment period for both sides because first of all, they didn't understand why I should be there because the Silva sent me there and I don't think they, they wanted my help necessarily to get the car into production. So they were a bit hesitant, but then like two, three weeks into it, I was just fully integrated. I mm. was part of the team. Every dinner we were going out together, it was plenty of uh, inside jokes and it just became kind of like a family at the end. So yeah. I really enjoyed it. A very different corporate environment from Germany, very emotional, lots of theater, lots of drama, lots of uh, uh, tantrums. And, and 15 espressos a day. Oh, they, everyone's <laughs> agitated to the point. Of <laughs> It's good stuff, yeah. And did you get, uh, like, any seat time in the prototypes or anything like that? Like, once they became drivable cars, were you were you then, okay, you know, your job is done now? Or did you, could you stay involved at that point? So there, without going into too much detail, but there was an unfortunate accident with one of the younger guys in the company driving a prototype mm. uh, or, or a production car as well. So they, when I was there, they were just reeling off of that accident and saying, we're not going to let any of the especially young, stupid employees drive our cars anymore. So I never got a chance to drive when I was there. But they did drive me around. Mm. And maybe that was even a better thing because back then, you know, I had very little experience driving uh, powerful cars and I, I would just tiptoe around. Uh, yeah. So somebody else driving and who knows what they're doing is always... A good way to uh, to understand the type of product you're actually working on. Yeah. And shortly after that, uh, I was back in Germany, and the uh, uh, Chiron project was uh, starting up, and uh, that was my first experience driving a fast car, the Veyron. There was a that one was of the chief engineers <laughs> brought the car over and said, "We're going for a drive." He drove. He hit like 350 kilometers per hour on the autobahn. Yeah. And then we switched sides. Uh, I, I drove, and then he said. Uh, 
don't drive like you're my grandma. And, <laughs> and then, yeah, I drove pretty, like pretty I wasn't his grandma anymore. Right? Yeah. And, wow. Yeah, that, was cra- that was crazy. Quite yeah. an introduction. So you go yeah. from like a Golf GTI company car to a Bugatti Veyron. Yeah. And that's a pretty big jump. I've never yeah. driven anything faster than a GTI prior to that. <laughs> that is a big jump. Yeah. Did you, when you were, uh, once Huracan was done, was it, uh, how true was it to your original design or did it have to be drastically compromised? There were some things about it that were still true to the original design, the general cleanness of the car. I think there was a lot of uh, uh, push uh, uh, from design, from the marketing side and from from, uh, some of the clients to make extreme, extreme, extreme design. But I really felt that... Lamborghini? No. (laughs) But if you look at the LP400, Countach, uh, uh, the original... um, I, I, I still think that the best Lambos are the ones that, that were uh, striking from proportions point of view and striking from, from kind of the overall, you know, shape, but not overloaded with complicated bolt-on details. Yeah. So the fact that the original Huracan is maybe cleaner than the Aventador is something that I personally really fought for, um, but the result uh, of the work is total teamwork. The I mean, Mercies have really aged well in that way. Yeah, yeah, they're gorgeous. Yeah. I really like those cars, yeah. Murcielago yeah. is great. Yeah. They're, they're, it's funny because like the, the Lambo, like the cars get better to drive after the facelift. Like they always kind of figure something out in the facelift. We just we just did a video like about the facelifted Cayenne Turbo GT, and I was talking about I use Lambo as a very specific example of like they never quite finish the dynamics until the facelift. But the uh, pre facelift cars are always really really clean, which is nice. Well, is that still the case though? Um. Well, what's the? I mean, the newest one I haven't seen in person. Revuelto, I've not. I haven't seen in person. I've only seen pictures, so I would say maybe not there. But O2 Mercy compared to an SV, yes, yes, yes. Uh, for so, sure. so that's my feeling as well. I think every new generation car should start this. Uh, the cleanest possible statement, and mm-hmm. then you sort of do all the RSs and all the RS yeah. and, and follow that. I once talked to Ian Callum for a bit over a bottle of wine at Pebble Beach, and he said that he never—I asked him if he ever owned any of the cars he designed, and he said no because he was unhappy with the the change in purity from his design to the production cars, even though there's objectively nothing wrong with the production cars. He just couldn't love them in the same way. Did you feel that way about any about the stuff that you've designed? Or I mean most of what you've designed is far out of reach for regular people to just go out and buy, but you could probably afford a Huracan if you wanted one. Well a Huracan perhaps, but definitely not the not the anything on the scale of a Chiron or a or a, a Kenix X that I worked on. Um, so I, I realized quite early on uh, that the role of a designer in a conventional de- uh, process uh, in car companies is very limiting. You are you are there, you are there almost like creating a candy wrapper for the technical bits mm. and pieces that are in the car. Uh-huh. And a lot of the big OEMs are, let's say, there's so much at stake. You know, there's logistics, there's purchasing, there's the parts, components, bins that they already have developed. And you can't just come in and say, you know what, for this amazing design to work, we're going to have to start from scratch. They can't. You know, there's a lot of stuff already there. But even with the stuff that's already there, if you were allowed to uh, shuffle bits around, if you were allowed to say, well, these control electronic boxes, let's just rotate them around, let's, let's stack them differently, let's relocate them from here to there, you could get the shape of the car far better optimized, uh, you know, as opposed to just working with whatever's handed to you. Yeah. 
And so I tried to understand more about packaging, and there was a few people that I met in my career that kind of uh, um, were inspirational in this in, in, in this way. A couple at Bugatti, but especially at Koenigsegg. I mean, the, the Christian experience, just learning from that guy. Um, it, it transcends what you think a role of a designer is to a point where you are becoming more more like a car architect. Mm-hmm. And at that point in time, if the final product looks not like what you imagined, you should really just blame yourself. Because if you were allowed to change stuff around in the packaging side, if you were allowed to reshuffle bits and pieces to the way you want them to be reshuffled, and you still don't achieve a good-looking car with good stance and, and good proportions, then... then I don't, I'm not. I'm not saying I want to own cars that I designed, but there is a point at which uh, you were given so much freedom that if it still doesn't look good, yeah. you might as well look for another <laughs> kind of job. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And is it is it because of someone like Christian, who is an out of the box kind of guy? Is it because of the size of Koenigsegg? Is it the fact that the cars are so expensive and boutiquey anyway that? you know, that contributes to the the out-of-the-box thing, or is it kind of all of the above? I think you nailed it. It's all of the above. Uh, Christian is very unique, it has to be said. He's very, very unique because he never takes what is there um, uh, as as, uh, a dogma. This is how it is. This is how it was. This is how it shall be forever. Yeah, he builds cars like as if no one has ever built a car. Every single time. Yeah. And and every piece of it, the technology, he's like, how can we do this differently or better? I drove a Gero once. This sounds great. This sounds easy. This sounds logical. It sounds like we can actually do this and we will not be doing this. We will be doing this other thing that is going to kill us, but we're going to succeed anyway. Yeah. That's that's his way. (laughs) Yeah. The synthetic manual transmission is real crazy. I mean, just I've not spent a lot of time driving those of just a couple and you drive one for five seconds, and you go, "Well, this is different. This isn't like anything else." I mean, yeah. the it's it's. But from the from even from the point of view of cabin ergo, like yeah. when you get into the cabin and you see this visor windshield that is just completely encapsulating your world yeah. view, and you have this almost three hundred and sixty wide view because the A pillars are so yeah. far back. There's just every you go, other. Why color. do A pillars exist? Mm-hmm. We don't need them, obviously. <laughs> like, <laughs> there is some safety attached to them. Sure, yeah. of course. Yeah, there yeah, is. Why can't we all, you know, move them all back? No, because yeah. it gets it makes getting in and out of the car slightly trickier. I'm sure. So let's yeah. say the rule book says there's a few points on the sort of uh, it's called a cantrail curve. So A pillar going into the roof. There are a few hard points there that you're not allowed to violate because that's where ingress and egress takes place. But Christian's kind of out of the box thinking says, well, I just want this windshield because it looks awesome when you're inside the car yeah. and we'll learn a new way of getting in and out of it. It's not yeah. any difficult. It's yeah. any, any more difficult. It's just not conventional way of kind of rolling your head into the cabin. And, and hence he has this yeah. new... And, and for that, that type of experience, like, look, it's okay if it's a little harder to get into the car. Like, there are plenty not of for, cars it's not for everybody. that are hard to get in and have probably adhered to the traditional hard point thing. I mean, it's, even with that, those those rules, yeah. we've driven plenty of cars where you go, oh, you got to kind of rotate this way or it's, you got to duck your head a little bit more, Viper, like yeah. stuff like that. So, But know. this is a, a common answer that I give to people who ask me, why do all cars look the same? Well, it's because they're built to the same set of uh, rules, regulations, dogmas, and, yeah. and hard points, you know, the, the sort of the entry curve is one of them. 
Folks, got to take a quick break for NASCAR. Their 75th anniversary season is really starting to heat up. We've already seen tempers flare on a couple of occasions with Bowman and Suarez exchanging words at Coda. And most recently, Ross Chastain introducing Noah Gragson to his right hand at Kansas. Emotions are high, and the field is certainly beginning to feel the pressure of locking in their playoff spot before it's too late. Now, this week, the NASCAR Cup Series is headed to Charlotte Motor Speedway for one of their biggest events of the year, the Coca-Cola 600. Wrapping up the 2023 NASCAR Salutes window, this weekend is about so much more than just a race. The entire racing community rallies around this event to show respect and gratitude to the brave men and women who protect the United States. There's just a grandness to this race, unlike any other race on the schedule. If you don't have Memorial Day weekend plans yet, you've got to check out NASCAR. Invite the whole crew over and watch NASCAR honor those who have fought and continue to fight for our freedoms by tuning in to the Coca-Cola 600 on Sunday, May 28th at 6 o'clock p.m. Eastern, 3 o'clock p.m. Pacific on Fox. What what was the process like of uh, of submitting designs for Chiron? Was it similar to when you did it for Ajeta, or was it is it more like the Koenigsegg side? No, it's it's it, it was it, it was a, a big big project. I think uh, VW Group. There were so many designers who wanted to be a part of that one. So we had uh, I don't know 13, 12, 13 uh, quarter scale models. One of which was mine as a selection process, and you had to kind of win uh, from that. I mean, where you know now it's whatever ten years uh, later, or however many years it's been since Sharon came. Five years later, whatever six. How long has Sharon been? Uh, it was at sixteen. Okay, so eight years later. Were the, did you when you were when you were doing your designs? Did you see what other people were doing, and ever look at at another person's design and go, oh shit, you know what? I mean, um, I want to win this, but actually, this person's design is pretty amazing. Um, there was a lot of impressive stuff in that selection, uh, in the in the um, original pool of ideas, and um, not all of the guys who worked on the project were sitting together with me in the same studio. There was, you know, uh, designers involved from other design centers of the group, so I couldn't see all of their designs. And then in the end, it all comes together in the final presentation, and then you sort of realize where you rank in that food chain. Um, um, so. I, I think I had a pretty strong concept in mind, and I was happy to to execute on that concept. Uh, just to over- pull up that drawing again, Zach. So when you, so they they I imagine they told you like, okay, this is going to be the same basic architecture as Veyron, so the packaging is similar if not exact, right? No, I think in the beginning of the project, uh, things were a bit more free. I mean, it was clear that we would have the, the W16 engine and the W16 engine with four-wheel drive with gearbox pointing forward. This sets up a cabin in many ways, so you, you're not sitting in a LaFerrari-type cabin where you're shoulder where the on seats shoulder. are very close together, you, right? You have the transmission between you, so yeah. that, that means there's a considerable uh, tunnel in place. And if you think about all these uh, technical uh, ingredients, that sets up a car also aesthetically, because uh, then you're not working with let's say, a car that lives off of its uh, uh, Group C-like tiny little bubble cabin and massive fender forms, but it's more of a, it's more of a squat bulldog proportion, you uh-huh. know, where you're kind of low but also wide and, right. and, and stancy. So there is uh, some stuff from the beginning that you know you have to 
tackle just because of the architecture of the car, but the initial phases are quite free. I mean, we could even change things like the window barrel and, and move stuff around okay. quite, quite a bit. And was this your first round of drawings that this we have up? This was the very first, very, so very first. It's amazing wow. to see how, how much of it actually survived. I mean, the whole front bumper and front nose is is pretty close to what the car yeah. looks like Very and the uh, the sort of uh, butterfly or what do you call it the rear the rear really made it made it to the end product too didn't it the rear is what made it really um and the idea of these very kind of muscly full air blown surfaces you know i thought i thought of a i think i had an image of a parachute at the time uh -huh. in my mind of just something that is tensed by the wind you know and that that was the the kind of form development that that we tried to put into it ironically the the side the side intakes behind the doors are much more like what you would see in a ferrari 296 right. than what you ended up seeing in a in the in the Chiron, which is that big C-shaped form. So the big C-shaped form... Uh, which is fucking we, cool, by the way. I love it. The C-shaped form is awesome. We called it the Bugatti line, Bugatti yeah. signature line. It was always in the mix, and we always knew we would probably go that way, but we wanted to explore every other eventual possibility before we went that way. Uh -huh. So in the first round of design proposals, the chief designers actually asked for us not to put that line oh. on the car. Okay. We, were, we were told to search for what else can be done. And then knowing that we will probably end up doing this. Uh huh. I mean, it works. Yeah. I think it, the cars. I think that C that C it. works a lot. And the C carries over to the interior because, of course, but totally. it just yeah. the interior is amazing. Yeah. It was a really good collaboration. I have to mention, there's there's you know obviously more people than just myself in the project. Etienne Salome was amazing on the interior. Uh, Frank Heil was together with me on the exterior uh, in the production phase, developing the car, and uh, Achim Anscheid was our. our, our um, boss. it's it's. Uh, it's remarkably kind of uncompromised, but it's also sort of unfussy considering how fast it goes and how much like air it needs to suck in and all that kinds of stuff. It it's just interesting doesn't... you mentioned that because it, it really just feels like it is sucking in air when you drive that car. Yeah. It's inhaling just everywhere. You feel a sense of devouring the air. Yeah. yeah. It looks like it looks angry and like it's just eating the air in front of it. Yeah. So when the in the the later versions like the pure sport and stuff with the big fixed wing, do you do you are you not about that design so much? I mean, oh, I've I've plenty of respect for what the guys did after you know, but I left already. I wasn't uh, I wasn't part of the company anymore. Mm -hmm. When the Chiron came out, uh, I really felt like that was it for me. It was also a crazy part of my life because I drove from Berlin to Wolfsburg every day, which is about. 450, 460 kilometers. So that's every like day, every day, day in what? the car, yeah, there and back. And uh, oh, there are there are no speed limits, but you still are fighting. Still, that's you're still, still fighting. 50, That's miles. a long drive. Every so I'm day, doing like yeah. 250 kilometers per hour on the autobahn, fighting my way through. Like, in a GTI. In the GTI. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's when, a well-used GTI. <laughs> those GTIs were swapped every six months, and they would always sort of be dealer demo. <laughs> always, always cared for because that's sold under the executive demo uh, label. Yeah. So I, I think I promised the uh, my wife, but also. Uh, my team members that the, when the project is done it's not sustainable i can't yeah. i can't do that anymore yeah it's, it's just, exhausting could you move closer to there <laughs> so the wolfsburg is in the middle of nowhere mm. i don't think anybody in it would voluntarily move from berlin to wolfsburg and uh, my kids sense. in school and my wife uh, working and then we bought a you know built a little house uh, bought a plot of land just outside uh, the center and it wasn't on the card for us to move plus i just felt like honestly like my kind of 
my mission is done. Like yeah. that thing really took a toll, and I, I was just happy to uh, uh, have yeah. it done. Yeah. That or you just need a faster company car. I mean, honestly, we need. A, I mean, that's a long. <laughs> that's, that's far. That is a big commute. That's, that's really Berlin far. Is yeah, an yeah. Amazing city. You don't want to move away from there. It, yeah. It looks stunning. Thanks. Great. Um, you and team. Amazing job. Thank you very much. Uh, can we I talk guess. about Gamara? Gamara? Jamera. Jamera? Jamera? Yeah. I can't, I can't no, fucking no. Christian. Make your cars pronounceable. I, there's for a fuck. Swedish way of saying CCX it. was just easier. Come on. Like, uh, now they've all got funky ass names. Yeah. Um, first uh, four seat hypercar. Right. Uh, talk to me about, about what Christian said he wanted and how you kind of interpreted his instructions into uh, this design. So yeah, that was a really incredible project. There's a little uh, short preamble slash anecdote that I think makes uh, uh, makes sense, and you know, I should tell. Um, around 2008, um, I went to visit Christian for an interview. Um, you know, um, late uh, no early 2019, and when I and when I saw the technical drawing of the Gemera, what would become the Gemera, I had this weird deja vu moment, uh, a bit like what I had earlier in your studio, where I felt this has happened before. It's weird, but it was a it was a it was a lasting effect. Yeah, I was sitting there looking at the technical drawing and feeling like I've seen this before. Like this is happening twice. So I went back home. I dug through my uh, hard drives and I found the 2008 technical drawing of a four-seat Koenigsegg with Koenigsegg logos and everything on it, and it was just a technical drawing that I had done in 2008. Hmm. So before I resaved the file or anything, I screenshotted the file so he you know, could see that the date, save date is 2008, sent it to Christian, said, Christian, check this out. I think this is what you just showed me in the, in the company, and I, I found something on my hard drive that looks ridiculously the same. It was mid-engine, it was four-wheel drive, there was a prop shaft going forward, there was four seats, it was low-slung, mid-engine, four-seat, Koenigsegg. Sorry, had you and just drawn this for fun or as an idea? For, just as an idea. Back then, I just drew it as an idea. And you never and sent it, it to them? You never just... sent it to them, nothing. Holy whoa. And then he replies saying, that's around the same time when I first had the idea. I'm like, you must have been, you know, somehow radiating brainwaves. <laughs> and, and I tuned into the radio station because, I don't know, I don't normally draw technical package drawings in my spare time but i did that one time so then it was like yeah you know what you should just come and help us with the project and it would be great to have you on board for this and i i, I was thrilled um we moved my family and i my wife and i and kids moved from germany to sweden and uh started working at Koenigsegg. and so the uh they did a they did design work on the project but christian was not happy with where things were headed uh on the design of the car so i was given pretty much a clean slate and at the time also the team wasn't fully in place. We had a couple of guys uh, in the studio, but uh, uh, the the heavy hitters that I was planning on bringing on board weren't there yet. So it was just this technical drawing, a design that Christian wasn't very happy with, and I wasn't very happy with it either. And the ambition to get the car to, to Geneva, mm -hmm. uh, and that's just a few months away from my start date. Uh, so just had to sit down. And this is the, this is kind of going back to the point of you should be modeling your own cars. So that I really sat down and started modeling like there was no tomorrow, just staying up nights and weekends. And uh, connected a good friend of mine as a freelancer to the project as well. So he was uh, staying up uh, uh, nights and weekends and, and helping me, uh, two of us basically, get this thing. And slowly as the time went on, the team came uh, on board and already the final weeks of the project were a little bit less uh, crazy, but the kickoff phase when this kind of monstrous uh, uh, ambition, ambitioned project lands on, on my desk with kind of a delivery date for Geneva and not much to 
kind of hold on to basically technical technical base was all there but the design we had to do in the in the few short weeks wow. so it's a it's a very cool design and it's you know as far as i can tell the only four seat car that's ever been designed with two doors and not four uh like in, uh, in t- as far as like you know, I mean, non, non, I didn't, maybe mean, I didn't word that you mean right. Full size I mean, full back size seats, yeah. back seats. Full yes. size back yeah, seats. Yeah, yeah, non, yeah. Plus two yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, that that was worded very badly. I'm sorry, but but it. um, it's uh, it's a really uh, uh, ambitious uh, design. So, talk me through uh, your ideas uh, for it. Well, a lot of what 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 is uh, possible on the uh, exterior and on the interior is only possible because of packaging, as I had mentioned previously. It's all about what's on the inside and determines what's on the outside. So Christian has this very uh, unique and brave way of packaging uh, uh, occupants in the car. So uh, you know, curving the, the the spine a little bit more than normal and mm-hmm. allowing the head therefore to sink in lower into the car. So there are ways you can optimize a seat that gain you headroom and gain you uh, living space within the vehicle without you know bringing your roof up higher. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of very good ergonomic design that went into the cabin. You could look at the this photo. I mean, I don't know if it's a rendering or a photo, but at the but the your ass in the front seat is like the lowest point of the car. It's really really low. It's it's a uh, it's not as extreme as like F1, but it's headed in that direction where I think you know your feet start coming. Is that am I right? Absolutely. Your feet start coming up, your ass drops, and you're just you lean back a little bit more. Feet. There's nothing too extreme here. So what 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 uh, is done is everything is tweaked by a little tiny bit, but then together it makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's not a car where you would sit and you're like, oh, I'm like an F1 driver. The feet are way up higher. Right. Or, you know, uh, my H point is weight. No, no, no. Everything is just a tiny bit modified, tweaked, and then overall you end up with a car that is kind of lower than a 911, but has more headroom than a Continental GT. You know? yeah, so you, right. you are really like, it's it's weird because from the exterior you don't anticipate the amount of space that the interior actually has. You think, yeah. well, it's a very tight, incredibly low-slung, um, proper mid-engine hypercar, and then op- doors open and there's a, a kind of a Porsche Panamera-like interior volume. It's really cool. It looks Awesome. I mean, when I first saw this thing years ago when it debuted, I was just, I think it's one of the best looking cars uh, I've ever seen. Very Absolutely. happy to have been a part of that project. Yeah. Very, very happy. It's so cool. And so the, it still has sort of the wraparound windshield. It's not quite as far as some of the two door cars, but it's pretty far. It wraps pretty far back. It does wrap very far back. I don't think yeah. we held uh, off on, on the wraparound at all. No. It's, it is incredibly wraparound. Um, there's a little bit more vision. Uh, both uh, up angle and down angle are better than in the mid en- in the mm, two seat mid engine cars, but uh, uh, it's it's the same plan shape, so same top view, same curvature on the windshield. It's very very round. Do they have like platforms the way that like other car companies do? It's or is this a completely unique tub and everything versus their other cars? So the word platform is anyway not something that is. Um, um, universally accepted to mean the same thing everywhere. Uh-huh. 
um, what defines a platform is different from company to company. I mean, if you are taking everything into consideration, platform is not just a set of engineering drawings. It's also the supply chain. It's also the logistics. It's also the manufacturing industrialization process. Things like the width of your hallway yeah. can determine whether you are able to produce this particular part and get it to a spray booth or not. Right. You know? So how far do you take the idea of platform? And of course, at Koenigsegg, like at every other company, there are synergies between products and there are certain uh, engineering solutions and design solutions that, that the company doesn't want to reinvent for every single car. But I would say, uh, in, in comparison with some of the other companies I worked on, uh, there's a lot of, uh, there's, e there's more freedom in each one of these cars uh, to do unique bespoke solutions. Yeah. He's... Did you ever like just sit in a room with Christian and you're just and you're just like, how is this guy's brain doing this? No, that was my three years in Sweden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy, isn't much, it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, does he just like come into work every day and go, I have an idea, and you go, you're just completely out of That's your mind? That's exactly what's going on. I mean, usually at like four o'clock in the morning, you get first set of text messages with ideas. Yeah. <laughs> then in the morning, there's a recap of what I sent you at night. What do you think of that? And yeah. In the evening, there's, I still had another one. <laughs> Did you enjoy Angle Home? I, I enjoyed it from the point of view of uh, initial experience. Uh, but it does get uh, tricky if you live there, you oh. know, just because I'm I'm more of a, um, a city person, uh -huh. and uh, I think what it, for us staying there also coincided with COVID times. Oh, yeah, that could be so. Tough. It was a little bit of a, a cabin uh, fever uh, type scenario where you feel uh, it's it's comfortable, luxurious in many ways, but you're just in a small town, in the middle of nowhere, and Sweden is kind of strange because. You could just by land get to places, but you would have to do a long detour. So they took they take ferries to get to continental Europe, you know, and then, then you just feel like you're on an island. Yeah. And when when the COVID hit and ferries stopped running, then you're even more kind oh, of yeah. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Here now. yeah. Yeah. So that was uh, Yeah. As a place to visit I liked Angleholm a lot. Sure. I thought it was neat. But I under, totally understand. Well, try living try there. living there. I mean, I don't know. Some people really like it. Like Christian oh, sure. is a big fan. But yeah. But I just like I want the concert scene. I want to be able to go out and 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 experience different like bigger cities: Berlin, Los Angeles. Sure. Like, every weekend you can do something that you didn't do the weekend before. Yeah. But in Angleholm, you like nature. You go see nature and. Yeah, yeah. it's also. It gets dark early in the winter, it too. It gets dark. It yeah. gets cold. So. Did you get to drive uh, a few of the Koenigseggs? Yeah. 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 They're, they're pretty wild. They're incredible, yeah. 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 By that, all means. I mean, uh, even – I don't like comparisons because every car has its own soul and its own unique character. But it's just, it's just amazing what a smaller company with a dedicated, talented, uh, and, and motivated uh, team can achieve – without having the resources of a, of a, of a Goliath. You know? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. really interesting. And the CC850, uh, which I saw at Quail last year, right. and I talked to Christian about it for a few minutes, pretty crazy car. So with that one, you sort of took the, the CC uh, design and updated it for, uh, you know, the future. It's got this synthetic manual gearbox, crazy. Yeah, which crazy. is really wild. Um, but uh, talk me through the de the design of this. How did you uh, how did you 
you know, make make changes while keeping the original vibe of the uh, the CC cars. Well, the original vibe sat next to me the whole entire time. Was <laughs> <laughs> that orange one? Literally looking over no, your I'm shoulder. I'm talking about Christian Koenigsegg. Oh yeah, himself. Christian. Yes. <laughs> Christian yeah. von Koenigsegg was was never far, um, and and it really had to pass his. Uh, uh, um, uh, he obviously. He loves the old cars, and we all do. I love the old cars, but he also has a very personal relationship with every little element on those old cars. There's a story to tell about every little thing. And it's really interesting when you're working on the new one and he comes and says, but you didn't notice this particular thing about the old one, but that meant a lot to me. And do you think mm -hmm. we could still incorporate that? So there was a lot of, of uh, back and forth between us. And uh, I, I fully embraced it. There are moments when I feel with some clients that I work with, with that I should just be left alone. But this wasn't it. Like, this was really great. It was yeah. just awesome to have all the insight into what they did to create the original shape and to try to interpret that uh, in, in, a, in a modern car. What are some of those uh, details? So, for example, the very uh, fine line that you walk between aggression, confidence, and... and uh, actually friendliness you know like he, he doesn't want the car to be overtly aggressive he doesn't want the car to like I always say cars should look cars should look like they want to burn your village and I don't, I don't mean <laughs> I don't mean that they need to be like Mansori style over exaggerated no that looks like you want to burn the car that's a different yeah, story it's a different burn, yeah. <laughs> but they should have menace in them in my mind uh -huh. and and Christian says no it should have the confidence it's definitely there you know it doesn't have a point point to prove it's it's the uh, fastest car in the world can are the best but it shouldn't necessarily want to burn your village so there was a lot of a lot of uh, back and forth on on how overtly aggressive uh, the facial expressions on the cars get and also for example the sculpture on the car the the uh, soft flowing uh, volumes on, on on the car that uh, maybe uh, if I was let's say first shots that I, I worked on uh, uh, for this car were edgier and, mm. and and he kept coming back saying but really we, we should be more uh, uh, you know, closer to the original in some of these sections and the door sections, and but he really liked what we did. I remember him saying that the car looks so much more toned and it just looks like it went to the gym and, and properly, like you know. It's interesting because that car, it, it's it was such a, a a product of the of late '90s and early 2000s design, um, the original one. I would uh, even say early mid '90s. Yeah. yeah. That's when uh, that's when they worked on it. Yeah, yeah. I get yeah ni '90s in general, and so to to update that without making it like I see people who are like rendering shit on Instagram and whatever, and it's like oh new new Testarossa, and it's basically like you know an SP3 with strakes on it, and and it ends up looking like like a much angrier version of the car, and this looks modern, but. But you're right. It's not particularly angry in its in its aesthetic. Well, that's that's the result of the teamwork that I'm talking about. It's a yeah. strange dichotomy of like the fact that like to drive that car is a very angry experience, but to look at it isn't compared to you know a Zonda or something like that. Right. But but I mean I guess in some way. Uh, Aiming at the purity of a 911 mm -hmm. uh, is never a bad thing, you know. When you say, "Well, um, it doesn't have to do the screaming with its looks; it just uh, it's on an emotional level that that you get the." You know, you get it's like a 22-year-old versus a 42-year-old. 
something like that. There's like yeah. a maturity, confidence, maturity um, a yeah. confidence. Yeah. Of yeah, it has like dad strength. Dad's yeah, like old man. It has you old know, man strength. You know, it's got James Bond confidence. Not to use something that's overplayed with Aston Martin, but just a per, a person who can handle anything and just looks like a tough person, but isn't advertising and shouting about it all the time. It also has uh, you know enough self uh, uh, confidence and and. Uh, uh, yeah, just doesn't have to scream and shout anymore. Mm-hmm. Kind of knows what he's or she's capable of. Uh, one of the things that that we really tried uh, uh, to yeah, improve is not the right word. Modernize uh, is sculpture. Um, the car has really nice uh, flowing highlights on the body side. Plenty of Coke bottle, more than the original ever had. Leaner volumes on the wheels. If you look over the uh, over the front wheel, the the amount of mass that the car has, it's much tighter to the wheels than the original was. So. It's stanced really well. I mean, it's not stanced like a tuner car, obviously, yeah, but, yeah. but it, for a for a for a grown up production car. Zach, get a photo of the the Koenigsegg CC8, the original. Uh, let's just see a back to back. It's got much bigger wheels. I mean, I think the CC8 probably had 18s or something. But to be fair, everything else is bigger too. Yeah. This, this cabin is bigger than the CC8 cabin, so it's in proportion. Everything there's is. A, so there's a CC8S. Oh, you can see it there. Yeah, the CC in this the CC8S, the silver one that's on the show stand there. That one. Yeah, you see the front volume. Yeah, there's the a wheel. lot more. F- yeah, yeah, yeah. So we kind of have a leaner, tighter, and then the, the front recorder of the new car there. Uh, lower corner. Yeah. Uh, if you if you click on that, you see just how tight that front uh, uh-huh. uh, volume is. Yeah. Oh man. And the original car was yeah. a good looking car, but it's like True. you know, serious yeah, to fuck helps. up. So you got to be careful. <laughs> That's the thing. People always say like, yeah, but you you know you guys are working on these extreme packages. It must be so easy, but it's also very easy to fuck it up. It's just so easy. You're 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 like a, a millimeter away from screwing things up at yeah. any point in time. Yeah. Very interesting. Now with you know, with you, we were talking about how a lot of times packaging of stuff determines the the overall shape. With electric cars, you in theory should have more freedom because <coughs> batteries can be arranged more uniquely than than <coughs> uh, motors and or engines and stuff, and no prop shafts and things like that. Do you appreciate that kind of freedom, or do you wish? Do you like having a technical drawing to work over? That's an interesting point. I think uh, for, let's say, for a minute separating um, passenger cars, regular cars from sports cars, and and speaking of of regular cars, the packaging of those has been predominantly around uh, an occupant Mm -hmm. for a very long time now. The actual drivetrain of those cars is is two-liter four-cylinder most often, right? And that two-liter four-cylinder is kind of the size of a it's negligible in packaging size. It's not defining the shape of the car in, at all. Mm. So when you remove that internal combustion engine from regular cars and you say there's batteries here now, the overall shape doesn't change that much. It's anyway always been packaged around safety of the occupant, around the, the uh, crash lengths that the, the uh, I don't know, crash beams that the car needs, the, the um, getting in and out, ingress, egress, like interior comfort. These things, I would say 95% of the car's shape is defined by that and not by the drivetrain. Okay. So switching to electric there offers some advantages. You can have a flat floor, uh, but it won't radically change the shape of the car. Like I said, it's 90% around the human. On the hypercar side of things, on the performance car, sports car side of things, engine is a much bigger lump. So that's... that's, uh, Placing it in the front or placing it in the in the middle of the car in the rear, 
defines the shape of the vehicle completely, right? And also weight balance, right? So you, you have a, a heavy uh, component and placing it strategically in the car defines the, the vehicle characteristics mm -hmm. to a large extent. Um, so switching to batteries there where you can more evenly distribute that weight around the car uh, means that there is potentially more freedom, but it's also very easy to lose character with that freedom because front mid-engine cars had a very uniquely exaggerated character with their long hoods. Mm -hmm. Rear mid-engine cars had a very uniquely exaggerated character with their long spines. And now if you say, I can throw my uh, uh, batteries wherever they I want in the car and for center of gravity reasons low, but it's very easy to end up with cars that are not fish, not meat, uh, uh, and, and, and to lose that strong sense of character. And that is a little bit the worry. Um, I think a lot of the companies are trying uh, their best right now to come up with a recipe for an exciting uh, electric sports car going forward. Um, well, we've seen some very impressive things on the market already, from Rimac, for example. And, uh, yeah, I drove a Navara. It's batshit. It's insane, right? It's batshit. I haven't, I haven't driven it. But it's batshit, but at the same time, and I said this, I told this to Mate and I told this to Miro, like, when you're not doing batshit things, it's shockingly normal, and for two and a half million dollars, I don't want fucking normal. Right. So yeah. that's that's the challenge. <laughs> you know? you, you kind of nailed that. Yeah. So it's very difficult to to still extract the same character, the same drama, the same the same yeah. kind of passion. At this point in time, um, there's there's a lot of uh, um, recalibrating that customers and and car car fans have to do to get yeah. used to the idea that there is no more fire breathing. Um, it's I'm, interesting though that like, I mean if you look at the Navara here, the shape is what I would call traditional hypercar. I'm sure, you know, Sasha, you can maybe spot small differences, but it looks like you could fit a lump of an engine in the back if you wanted to, just looking at oops, wrong one. Like if you go back and forth, just the way the canopy kind of tapers in the back and is still very high, you know. Yeah, you could. But, but maybe they put stuff back there. I don't know. It, it, I think the driver compartment is moved slightly rearward. The nose is a little longer than it otherwise would be, mm -hmm. and the rear deck is a little bit shorter than it otherwise would be. And they do package some of the batteries where an engine would have gone. Yeah. It's floor plus that. But it's not really the floor, because if you do the floor, you sit higher. Yeah. So it's actually not under the it's, driver's it's seat. Under, it's like behind you, yeah. kind yeah. of. Yeah. It's yeah. like what they do with the Ferrari and stuff. Do you, do you think... From, from a designer's perspective, like the markets, you know, we, we kind of like what we like. And if something deviates too strongly, it's very dangerous. Like we'll either love this new idea that's disruptive or we're going to hate it because it looks way too weird. So is that a challenge with something like an electric hypercar or sports car where you go, oh, you have all the freedom for packaging. But if you go too far off, you know, from the norm, like maybe it will, it yeah, won't succeed. I mean, uh one one thing that comes to mind is I think the Silva was the one my one of my uh, bosses uh, all from from VW times um, amazing designer he was he always said don't make double step make only one step that meant uh -huh. don't go two steps ahead of where everybody thinks you should be mm. you know because if you do two steps it's very easy to to lose uh, uh, people don't get it and then in hindsight it was a great product but nobody bought it and it bankrupted the company well great right <laughs> right so uh, so there's always that consideration as well that you need to do something that is that lands well that people yeah. people are able to because 
inevitably you are deeper in the subject than most of your customers will be, you know, because you are you are losing sleep thinking about these things. So it's 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 always easy to think that everybody's with you in the depths of your you know imagination, but I but they're not. They're just it. sitting at home and then browsing their Instagram feed, and then this thing pops up, and they think, "What is that?" Like I don't care. I don't like it. <laughs> so it's really important to sort of always have that naive naive first look. Yeah. You know, to be able to say you know, just palate cleanse. I don't know. Eat a bunch of uh, ginger and <laughs> and look at it like you're seeing it for the first time and understand as a as a normal car guy, as somebody who just likes cars. Do I still like this or have Cyber truck. Really like so, it. You like I it. Fucking love it. Really? Yeah. Interesting. What do you really like about it? I really like the fact that it's uh, designed back to first principles, that uh, a lot of the design that we see in front of us right now in the regular car segment is just decoration. There's nothing, like when you see a car, come up to it, point your finger at any bit of it and say, what is this and for which purpose? Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, eight out of 10 times you'll say, there is no purpose, it's here, and without this thing, the car would be just as good, it would drive just as well, it's just here because it looks cool or designer thought it was fancy or competitors have something similar and this company also felt like they needed to put that on there. It's like removing a, uh, a headphone jack from, from an iPhone but still keeping a chrome ring on it. Right. Mm -hmm. Apple would never do that. If the headphone jack is out, the chrome ring is out with it. It doesn't stay but cars don't have exhaust pipes yet they still have plastic exhaust pipes. You know? Those are dumb. I agree. So Those that's, are dumb. But or that's like the intakes in the front that are covered up. Intakes in the front that are covered up. Yeah. Um, air outlets that don't let any air out. The curves on the body side. I mean, uh, what, are, what, are the, what are the purpose of those curves? What are they actually doing? So for me, Cybertruck is a really incredibly powerful, some may say offensive, but statement against this fashionization. It's, it's a car that is made out of uh, steel. It's a car that will... Um, I think define a generation going forward. There's going to be a lot of influence of that car. It's a piece of architecture on the road. I cannot say that uh, 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 I find it beautiful, but I, I think that it's a philosophical statement uh, mm. on, on the scale of a, a black square. You know, it's, it's just a very cool thing to have pulled off. It's interesting. I think it's fucking heinous looking, but well, yeah. but but that's fine. I don't need to buy, I don't need to buy one. I also don't think it does most of the things that they say it's going to do. No, it's not exoskeleton, it's not bulletproof, it's not gonna fucking float, it's not gonna do any of that shit. Well, you can't you even know. throw a, a, a <laughs> what is it, the, what, what are they throwing you at it? You couldn't throw the little ball at it without smashing the window. Um, but you get but what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Like, no, no, I mean, it's the, the removal of superfluous design. Just clutter, noise, sure. eye cancer, there's many ways to put it. Yeah. Stuff, well, you look at cars and you're just like, what is this, for what purpose? Like, cladding on cars. Does it do any job of protecting these cars from damage, from city use? No, it's just arbitrarily th thrown onto the car mm -hmm. because it looks cool. I think it looks terrible. I hate it. You know, you go from like a nicely painted fender or body line or whatever, and then all of a sudden there's just flat plastic. And it, uh, that's you know, my opinion. I think it just is an intentional base model that offers an opportunity to sell someone a painted fender at, for more money later. Could be. There's also that built into the projects, yeah, yeah. where you need to kind of ration it out. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, right. It's like wearing fashion boots, like boots that have, you know, aggressive mud tread, but they're just fashion shoes. Like they're not meant for right. walking in. Right. So it's this, this look of ruggedness and durability and outdoorsiness like the cladding, but it's on a car that is not actually doing that or never or, used or, for that. Or, or it's, the, it's <clears> the kind of... Uh, uh, um, 
sole pattern that you would associate with these shoes, but it's applied onto a shoulder. Mm. And you wonder, like, why would it be on a shoulder? Like, right. what actually is the point? Am I going to climb a rock, yeah. a mountain with my shoulder? Yeah. Like, so that's that's a little bit the question that I have when I see modern cars is how much of it is genuine? Uh, you know, how much of it is... Uh, because why can't it just be that the form follows function? How how stupidly simple is that idea, and why can't it just but be that? Are we in well, a tough spot now because of same. CFD and miles per gallon? So right, if so many of the cars would have the same size, the same point. hard points, and the same function, they would the same all look goals, the same. Look the same. You ever see that someone? I, I, but that's I, not a bad thing, is it? I forget what. Well, it is if you're, trying, if you're trying to, to sell, sell, you're sell to someone. Not necessarily. Car. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. No. No. But we have. I feel like we need. We get so much of our. Look, how many, Identity with how many cars, of us are so. wearing the same like Levi's pants and and uh, I don't know simple uh, um, Converse shoes and and uh, uh, sure hoodie. Um, I, I don't necessarily need to look like Freddie Mercury filming uh, it's a hard life uh, <laughs> video. True, with a, but you're but you're wearing a DC sweatshirt and DC shoes. Am I? Uh, I you are. So, yeah. Now, do you like DC? Are we a skateboarder? Like, what is it about that company? So, as, as a kid, I did a little bit of skateboarding. That mm-hmm. wasn't at all meaningful, but it was a gateway to thinking that I can wear skateboardy shit and, and feel comfortable <laughs> in it. I, same thing. Uh, and then uh, when when Ken Block was part of DC story, that felt to me like a cool thing. And then a few metal bands that I like uh, were wearing uh, DCs at one of their concerts, and I thought that was a pretty cool shoe and figured, like, well, I can right. kind of try it on for size. It so I think, sense. like, a piece of your identity and, and your personality is connected to skate culture and DC shoes, right? Right. So I think cars, for decades, going back, you know, 80 years, people have purchased cars because they went, I like the way that looks and what it says about me and how it makes me feel. Yeah. So if they all look the same, we'd lose that, and so that would be really tough. That's the whole point, though. <clears throat> if we're talking about uh, business opportunities, mm-hmm. I think there's a major business opportunity for someone who says, I'll just make a car that is not full of this personality crap. I'll just make a car that is just a car. Super perfect, perfectly stanced, perfectly proportioned, no gimmicks, no nonsense. Just, just. So just, you mean mm, like a genuine shape, but none, nothing tacked on. Well, the same it. way that Golf Mark IV for me was a perfect shape, the same way that the Mark I Golf was a perfect shape, you know, where things are the way they are, and you can kind of, you can kind of point your finger at blindly at any part of the car and say, what is this for? And th- there's a reason what it's there for. Sure. There's, I think there are a few cars that do that. A Mark IV Golf is a good example. Maybe not the R32. Well, why but not? It, That's a cool one. It Spence. is a cool one. But, like, it, there is nothing yeah, fussy about it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's – there, is there any – there's got to be a few cars on the market today that have that. Um, actually, I'll, I'll credit Tesla. The Model 3, I think, probably has that. It doesn't have a lot of superfluous design shit on it. It doesn't. You're right. It's 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 close to the idea that I'm talking about right yeah. now. It's just the styling of that car. To me, it doesn't speak as well as uh, as a Golf does. Like I like things that are more Bauhaus, you know, uh-huh. more more kind of uh, uh, product design, industrial design, and less swoopy in general. Mm. And that thing's just in my mind still feels a bit swoopy. Nine Eleven. Or came or Cayman, you know Porsche Cayman or Boxster. Well, I think those are definitely on that. Yeah, side. they're 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 right up there. I definitely. mean, they don't have a lot of at least, especially the the lower trims. Definitely. They don't have a lot of extra shit on there. And and that is really a car where you can still kind of inside and out point a finger at, at anything, and there's a reason why it's there. Yeah, that, that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. But but there's a lot of other cars. Sure, <laughs> especially if you are making the midsize sedan. 
you know, and your A to your C pillar is like the same no matter what brand you are, and it's really just a front fascia and a rear fascia that identifies this as being your car. Um, there's a lot of Zach's got some charts up, and there's a there's a lot of a lot of the similar things, especially yeah, compact crossovers from Subaru to Rav4 to you know, accurate or whatever, they, they're all very, very close, mm -hmm. except for the front and the rear Well, when, when I'm on the market for, for a car, I really try to look for something that has as little design as possible. Like, I, I don't know, it's hard. They're very hard. It's very, very hard to find these mm -hmm. days. But I, you drove up in a Defender, I drove a new a Defender, Defender yeah. which is a pretty good example of what you're talking about. I would have loved to take more stuff out, but it is what's on the market. Yeah. You know? But... Those things that cover the rear windows bug me. I like the little the two door Defender with the That's steelies cool. on it. That, my and, friend's got one of those. That's cool. And a V eight. Uh, this one isn't, but I've seen those with <laughs> yeah. the V eights, and they're pretty rowdy yeah. as well. Yeah, cool. yeah, neat. Zach, do we have anything on the Patreon? Mm -hmm. If you want to ask questions of our guests, uh, watch the live stream, get an ad free experience, and get the show early. Patreon.com slash the Smoking Tire Podcast. Plans starting at just three bucks a month. Uh, Lucas says, uh, how hard is it for, uh, well, uh, a designer to, we kind of touched on this before, but how hard is it for a designer to compromise on their own taste to accommodate manufacturers' ideas and needs? Can a designer say, no, I won't do that. It's ugly. Imagine it, your design won't be picked if you do that, but... Um. So it's an interesting question because obviously we're not just, as designers, we're not just doing things uh, simply on a whim. It's not like, I just like this and that's why I'm going to do it. No, I think this makes sense for the brand. This makes sense for the evolution of the design kind of trends in the industry. This may, I, I have usually a story to tell with a design, right? It isn't just, I felt like it and that's what it looks like. So, and every designer that offers their vision for a project comes in not just with a set of sketches, but comes with some kind of background to explain what it is that they did and for what reason. And, you know, when you get picked uh, and, and you get to see your car through to production, there's still plenty of alignments that have to happen, you know, with marketing department, with, with management of the company, sometimes with the founder and the CEO, you name it. And it, each, one of, each one of those alignments, there's a conversation to be had. But if you have gained uh, uh, trust and reputation within the company for someone who is reasonable, they hear you out. And then they they argue with you or they accept your point of view, but it's it is teamwork. You know, mm. you're not there isn't this. It's not like raging against the machine. You say fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. And you, <laughs> some people do, but but they you're don't. They're not going to last very long. You know, I guess I've been pretty strong about uh, uh, not compromising on some of the things uh, in the projects where I had uh, a more leading role, and that hasn't always gone down well. But then like. As time passes, even those people still come back and say, well, actually, that wasn't such a bad thing that you did fight for this. For example, having uh, uh, wheels from the Veyron with these, in my mind, terrible PAX tires that Michelin did, oh, yeah. the run flats that were m super high sidewalls. In, 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 in fact, the front wheels sidewall was taller than the rear wheels sidewall. That actually meant that no matter when you look at the uh, where you look at the car, it always looks like it has nose up configuration mm -hmm. because the front tire makes the rim sit slightly higher off the ground than the rear tire. Yeah, 
And that was something I personally was... There's a good, was, good photo right there, the black one on the second row on the left. You can you can see it always looks a little you higher. You see that? It's just, it's, it's kind of poking up with yeah. its nose. And, yeah. and this was one thing that I remember fighting like crazy about, is to, to move away from these PAX tires. And there was a lot of engineers who were saying that was not a good thing, and we should stick to these safety tires because the you know, car's doing crazy speeds. But... Um, so you, you fight for what you believe, but if you have a good story and if you explain, you, you know, I made a few attempts at explaining why the Veyron maybe doesn't sit as well on the wheels as it could because of that front tire, and in the end you get it through. They were also 30 grand a set or something. Yeah. <laughs> they, had, they were ridiculous. Yeah, the Chiron has, a, has expensive no. tires, but you don't have to send the wheels no. to France to have them no. installed. Yeah, that was one. That was one worth arguing over for sure. All right. Well, uh, yeah, but I was, what I'm trying to say is that you're not being unreasonable. You're trying yeah. to find arguments, explain your point of view, and ultimately, when you've exhausted every other option, you kind of have to deal with what you have. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Clinton says, uh, "I'm in a tiny outcast camp that thinks carbon fiber doesn't look good on everything." I feel like in a full-blown pl- prototype, meaning race car, it works. In a road car with different materials, it doesn't flow well and might even look cheap. Am I wrong? No, I think uh, absolutely not wrong. First of all, carbon fiber uh, visually, I find, has kind of exhausted itself a yeah. little bit at this point in time. It was a novelty. It was something that people really like to show off on their cars. But right now, when... You know, everything is carbon fiber. There's not really a unique selling point in in having carbon. Um, As much work as companies put into uh, uh, aligning the weave between panels and making sure that it's seamless, there's still a very patchy way that reflections and sunlight reflects on carbon fiber. So you never get a good read of the entire flow of the of the of the highlights on the car you always get really loud aggressive reflections in some areas and then mm. muted in the other areas so the car ends up being kind of patchy mm. in, in in the way it looks so i think that uh, um there's if i were to spec a, a high-end hypercar i would definitely just have it painted there's no reason for for carbon fiber to be exposed uh, when it comes to factual use of carbon fiber it is still lighter stronger sure uh, i think uh, i think he's talking about as an aesthetic yes, not as yeah, a uh, yeah. i like when they use it as a negative space like a halo like when when they uh, rather than having like uh, the, the the model of the car as a badge where it's painted but it's haloed so you can see the carbon as a detail, yeah. I think that's yeah, nice. that's cool. That's that's, trick, yeah, that's for cool. Sure. Yeah. yeah, but you could definitely overdo it. Uh, Prashan says, "Is there any merit to the coupe crossovers? I thought they were ugly at first, but the X6M is kind of growing on me. I am anti coupe crossover." <sighs> I'm also not excited about coupe crossovers. I, I would say it's it's a project uh, that pops up very often when you work uh, in car companies, and it's not a project that anybody's really excited about. It's not the one that people are going to be like, oh, my God, I can't wait for that, you know, coupe crossover to come my way. And No one's final project at Art Center is a, is a coupe crossover. I think some people may be doing that just because they're hoping that car companies will hire them. But then you think, well, if you're that kind of desperate and you're still a student, yeah, come on, have a dream. Yeah. <laughs> this is your last moment that's to have funny. a dream it's before you go That's where job. dreams go to die. Uh, that's hilarious. Uh, Levi says, have you ever been involved in pitching a car, a whole car. He says, I think a truly affordable, compact, rear-wheel drive, all-wheel drive platform would be a great seller. History says otherwise, my friend. Uh, my pitch would be to bring back AMC with Gremlin and Eagle as a shared model. You're dreaming, Levi. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. 
Um, have you ever been involved in pitching a whole car? Well, I would say the closest to that experience is the time at Koenigsegg, uh -huh. where we were routinely brainstorming on not just the design of the car, but the entire concept of the vehicle, where, hey, Christian, should we do something like this? Oh, that's a pretty good idea. Let's discuss, uh, you know, come over after work. We can sit down and have a chat on this. So there was always uh, the doors are open to discuss the entire car. It, it was be never so just, great yeah. to see what Koenigsegg could come up with if they were trying to sell a $60,000 sports car. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I realized. Cool crossover. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but somehow he would make it great. Those are sports cars, though, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Michael Cosgrove says, can you find anything positive from a design perspective on the new BMW M3 and M4 grille? Uh, short answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's not great. Uh, Red Rover says, what are the differences in design in a front engine versus a mid-rear engine car in regards to pedestrian safety? That's very particular. That is a very particular <laughs> That's question. That's very interesting. I mean, so so the differences in design between front mid-engine and rear mid-engine is obviously the placement of the engine, and yeah. that changes everything about the car. Usually car's cabin is set up with so, a so-called four-degree down angle, four-degree vision angle that comes out of your eye and reaches to the road. And if the engine is in the front and you sit further away from the road, you also need to sit slightly higher mm, to be able to see, to see over the engine. So that sets up the fact that, that determines the fact that defines the fact that front mid-engine cars are by definition a bit taller than rear mid-engine cars because of that four degree vision line. Right. So on the exotic scale, that's why modern mid-engine cars are more exotic is because they are lower squatter. They are just, they look more extreme. They look more like spaceships on the road. Whereas a front mid-engine car always has its cabin poking out slightly taller than, than you would want in a way. Older cars before four degree vision lines were, uh, you know, uh, homologation necessity, you could do a lot more with those. And that's why you had very extreme front mid-engine cars that are just not quite uh, doable anymore. Right, right. sure. Uh, pedestrian safety. Uh, actually, a good point. Uh, when you have a big lump of an engine in front, that means head impact areas for for the pedestrian uh, are, you know, going over the engine, and that means you need a certain amount of clearance, active hood that pops open when when there's an impact, or air yeah. clearance to the engine. That means the hood goes even higher, and that means the four degree vision line goes even higher. And that means the car gets even uglier. It just compounds. Yeah. Yeah. Rear mid-engine car does not have an engine in the front, so you could easier sort of swallow the pedestrian impact requirements because there's no engine to clear, basically. With Are you worried impact. about windshields at that point? I don't know whether windshield is part of the uh, head impact zone. Um, usually, it's uh, the, the problematic areas are... Uh, hood shut lines, oh. the, the, the parting lines between hood and front fender. Because uh -huh. the front fender is because the sheet metal of the hood sort of wraps around and creates a very strong ridge along the whole length of that uh, of that uh, fender shut line, hood shut line, and that's where potential head impact is actually problematic. Because as opposed to the other areas on the hood that deflect under mm -hmm. impact, that thing stays put. Interesting. Yeah, yeah I haven't oh, thought about cool. that. Last one. Tim says, I've heard anecdotally that the hardest part of design is knowing when you're done. Is there any truth to that? I think for for a vast majority of people, that is the truth. Yeah. Yeah. They just they just don't know when to stop. Uh, both companies and, and individuals. Uh, but I think a really good way to know when to stop is 
having budget uh, constraints. <laughs> <laughs> when the money runs out, they will tell you when to stop. <laughs> when you reach into your pocket and you feel like there's nothing there, then you <laughs> have to stop. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's excellent. Well, great show, Sasha. Thank you for Thank you, uh, coming. That's a per. That's the same thing in radio. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know yeah. when to stop and know when to stop. Uh, follow Sasha on Instagram. It is uh, Sasha, S-E-L-I-P-A-N-O-V, Sasha Selipanov on uh, on the gram. He posts all kinds of cool uh, cool shit. And uh, now hopefully going to be a Los Angeles local for at least some, some time. Yeah. So we'll see you at uh, the Cars and Coffees and all Absolutely. those up in the canyons, all that good stuff. And uh, thanks to all our patrons for asking such good questions. And we will see you guys next week. Bye.